And with that, it is time for us to head downstairs to Children's Church. Wendy Irwin, and I will be reading today's scripture to you. The scripture reading is from Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 14. A reading from Exodus. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the 10th of this month, they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who will eat of it. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A year old male, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted over the fire with its head, legs, and inner organs. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt. I will, both human beings and animals, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Told us to be good to. I think that was Sarah speaking to us from downstairs. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our strength, our rock, our Passover, our peace. Speak to us in the name of the Lamb. Amen. So here we are in Exodus again. We've heard about the Hebrews being enslaved by the Egyptians, about how Pharaoh ordered the death of each newborn baby boy, and how baby Moses escaped via a miniature ark down the Nile. And last week, Jerry Schoberg told us all about God speaking to a reluctant Moses through a burning bush, calling him to confront Pharaoh, to tell Pharaoh to set my people free. We can't fit everything in, sorry to say, so we've skipped a few chapters. Long story short, Moses did what he was told. Let my people go, he said to Pharaoh on multiple occasions. And every time, Pharaoh would say, no. I mean, if Pharaoh said yes, we wouldn't even be in this tricky situation we are in. Every time Pharaoh says no, then God sends a plague on Egypt, first turning the Nile to blood, and Pharaoh says, then sending frogs, then lice, then flies, Pharaoh says, no, no, no. no. Then the death of the country's livestock, then hail, then locusts eating crops and a darkness over the land for three days, Pharaoh says, no, 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 no. Nine plagues, chaos throughout the land, and still Pharaoh refuses to release Israel from bondage. That's nine plagues, but there is a tenth plague, the tenth and final plague, which makes Pharaoh relent. Thus says the Lord, Moses says, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn of the land will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh to the firstborn of the lowliest slave, the firstborn duck, the firstborn cow, the firstborn sheep at midnight, all shall be struck down dead. And all will know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. The final plague, the final penalty for Pharaoh's refusal, 
is death. It's death. We're not sure if it's an angel of death or the Lord himself, simply that the destroyer, that's the word that's used, the destroyer will be unleashed throughout the land. The firstborn of every human, regardless of status or class, and every animal shall be struck dead. And a great cry will ring out throughout the land, a great cry of grief. Now, I remember a Bible study a few years ago when we were looking at a passage, not this passage, but a passage like this one, where God struck somebody dead. And one participant said, this is why I hate the Old Testament. God is just so brutal in there. God's just so brutal. On account of Pharaoh's hard-hearted unwillingness to free the slaves, every family in his kingdom will suffer the death penalty, where he ordered the murder of the firstborn males of the Hebrews. Now all the firstborn of Egypt will be dealt that same blow. His whole kingdom will be made to suffer on account of the mistakes that Pharaoh has made. And not only that, God's the one who does it. If not directly, God's at least the one who says, make it so. The punishment is severe, it's indiscriminatory, brutal, maybe a mild way of putting it. Brutal may be a mild way of putting it. Now, as brutal as it is, as brutal as it may seem, there is an important truth in this text that we need to pay attention to. In his book, Aftermath, Life in the Fallout of the Third Reich, Berlin-based journalist Harold Yoner tells stories about life in Germany following its defeat in the Second World War. As the Allied forces invaded, Germany was pounded into submission. Hundreds of thousands were made into refugees, invading armies, especially those of the Soviet Union, committed incredible atrocities in reprisal for what the Germans had done to them. Many people who did not actively support the Nazis or personally participate in Nazi crimes bore the brunt of revenge. Most people saw themselves as victims, even if they weren't. But Yonard points out that though some were completely innocent, many were actively or passively supportive of the regime. Regardless, in the end, it didn't matter because the destruction that was visited on Germany didn't discriminate between the guilty or the innocent. The bombs fell on everybody equally. You could say that the angel of death visited every household equally. Why is that? Well, because we don't live life in a vacuum. Other people's sins have consequences for us, for others. Our sins have consequences for us and for others. Even ones that echo throughout history. We're born into families where we're on the receiving end of our parents' problems, our sins are visited on our children, 
We're born into societies and cultures, times and places where such things are visited upon us and others without our action at all. I mean, this week, residential schools especially come to mind. We didn't personally do the deeds, nor did we have the deeds personally done to us in many cases. Yet here we are, living with their consequences. The angel of death has visited us all equally. In biblical terms, we call this the doctrine of sin. That the human mess began far before our entrance into it. And that we're all living with its consequences. And as the Apostle Paul says, the wages of sin is death. We live in a world of fatal inescapable consequences, those that are often not even of our own choosing nor of our own deserving. I often quote, you know, St. Elvis of Graceland. Uh, when we talk about this stuff, you know, we're caught in a trap and we can't walk out. That's the human condition. Regardless of our individual guilt, we all live under the same judgment, the same penalty. We live in a fallen world. Sin is a reality for us all. Heartache, suffering, pain, and death are all the inevitable endpoint of the human condition. We live in a world where the angel of death visits each of us equally. We're caught in a trap. We can't walk out. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, well, thanks. Um, we just went from brutal to depressing, uh, which is fair enough. Um, the Bible has a pretty low view of human nature. It does. We're not as great as we think we are. And the predicament is pretty dire. No amount of education, good deeds will save us from these consequences. They are just too deep within us. No simple human ingenuity or five-point plan will get us out of this mess. Actually, if you have a five-point plan for getting the human race out of its mess, please share it with, not with me, but somebody who can do something, please. Please. We are caught in a trap. We can't walk out. The angel of death visits each of our homes equally. Now, of course, in our scripture passage, there is a provision made for the Israelites. Not by human beings, but by God. God tells them to take a lamb, to slaughter it, and smear its blood on the doorpost. If they do that, then the destroyer will pass over their homes leaving them untouched. This is where we get the name of the celebration of Passover from. God passed over these homes and spared them. Not only would they be spared from the consequences of Egyptian wickedness, it would be the final straw in Pharaoh's relenting and letting them free. Egypt and its gods would be overthrown, and Israel would make its way out of slavery into the promised land. And you know, 
the directions say every year, tell the story. Sit down to a meal of a slaughtered lamb, bitter herbs, and unleavened bread as a reminder of God's great, great deliverance and a reminder that God does stuff like this, which Jews still celebrate to this day. Also Jehovah's Witnesses, but you know, not most Christians. God made the Israelites provision by the sign of blood, by the sacrifice of a lamb. Death passed over their doors, and they were freed from slavery. This is the provision that God makes by the blood of the lamb. By the blood of the lamb. Now, Christians celebrate Passover, too, in some sense, but there is a slight twist in how we think of the Passover, and that twist is a Galilean peasant named Jesus. Jesus is the twist in the story. You see, the New Testament understands the Passover from Egypt as a foreshadowing, a sneak preview of an even greater Passover to come. Jesus is crucified during which festival? The Passover, you're right. Star for Heather. The festival of Passover, God's great liberation from slavery. Now, as in the case of Israel's slavery, Jesus is assaulted and oppressed by a sinister regime and an alliance of local religious authorities in the Roman Empire, but there's also more to it than that. The New Testament kind of sees behind the veil of human activity. In the same way that the Egyptian gods were behind Pharaoh, the Gospels understand cosmic forces at work behind flesh and blood enemies. In the New Testament, Jesus is going to battle with evil itself, with the powers of sin and death that have enslaved humanity since the fall. That trap of brokenness that we can't walk out of is the enemy this time, and the stakes are so high that they are cosmic. They're universal. It's a Passover battle too, but the Passover battle is waged differently. Death doesn't find a way among the Egyptian people, but rests on only one person, Jesus himself. When Jesus shows up in public for the first time in John's gospel, John the Baptist with his crooked points and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. The New Testament understands Jesus as the Passover Lamb whose blood is shed. In the same way that the consequences of Pharaoh's sin were delivered on the Egyptians, Jesus is the one who bears the sins of all. And in the same way the blood on the doorpost was a sign of salvation for Israel from bondage in Egypt, Jesus' blood and sacrifice is the, salva- the sign of forgiveness, freedom, salvation for all, from bondage to sin and the power of death itself. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and God's way out is through forgiveness. It's through forgiveness. 
And Jesus, God himself, has absorbed the consequences of all sin. Our sin. The sins of our mothers and fathers all the way up to our primordial ancestors. The ones we call Adam and Eve. Jesus shed his blood and faced the destroyer in our place. He is the sacrifice. He is the spoke in the wheel reversing human history. He is God's provision, our Passover and our deliverance. His blood is the sign of our salvation. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Passover Lamb. Now in a few minutes, we're going to partake in our own Passover meal, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, observing it as a perpetual ordinance, as our Exodus passages calls it, as directed in Scripture, recalling the first Passover of the Israelites from bondage to freedom and recalling Christ's Passover from death to life. Our salvation from sin, the cage of the human predicament, the powers of evil, the consequences of all sin leading to death, the bread as his body that was broken, and the wine as his blood that was shed. As we take in, partake in this meal later on, the Lord's Supper, you are invited to taste the promises of God. Taste and see that the Lord is good, as the psalmist says. And the first promise is this. Jesus means that you are forgiven. You are forgiven. In all the ways that others have been hurt by you, all the ways you've fallen short, all the ways others have been punished by your sins, you are forgiven all of it. Woo! Everything. All of it. You are forgiven. Jesus has paid all debts, borne all penalties. You are, as they would say in the American South, washed in the blood of the Lamb. You're free to live. You're free to make amends. You're free to love your neighbor as yourself. His blood is a sign that death will pass over your house and that you are indeed destined for the promised land. That is the first promise. It is the promise that you are forgiven. I mean you, not the royal you, although I do mean the royal you, but you personally and me. And the second promise is this. Jesus means that you are not only forgiven, you are freed you are freed in all the ways that you have been hurt, in all the ways you've been broken, kicked, beaten up on account of somebody else's sin, 
you are freed. All that shame, all that pain, Jesus knows it and has taken that to the cross too. In the same way that you are forgiven, you can forgive. You can start again. You know, I'll go back to a hymn that we'll probably never ever sing at <laughs> St. George's, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. <laughs> we will probably not sing that. But there is a line that says, Sinners washed beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. Yeah. There is healing for you today, total healing for you tomorrow. His blood is a sign of that death will pass over your house too. Jesus means that you are freed. And finally, the third promise is this, that Jesus means a future. Forgiveness, freedom, and a future. For you, for me, for the world. In the same way Pharaoh was defeated and Egypt's gods were overcome, all that enslaves creation has been conquered in the cross of Christ. No power on this earth that oppresses political or personal will stand against the might of the Lord, against the self-giving love of the King of hearts. Jesus means a future. No matter how bad things get, remember that the Lamb who was slain has conquered. The Lamb who was slain has conquered and is seated on the throne of creation. Jesus means we have a future. The future belongs to God. The future belongs to God. Jesus means Forgiveness, freedom. This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. You can tell I'm just reading out of the Bible now, can't you? Throughout your generations, you shall celebrate it as a perpetual ordinance until that day that we pass over to the promised land. That day when we pass over to God's new creation. Until that day that every knee shall bend and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That day that one day where God is all in all, forever and for good. I'll quote that hymn that we'll never sing again. In the meantime, redeeming love shall be our song. Redeeming love shall be our song until the day we die. Until the day we die. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
as you are able for our hymn of the day, What Wondrous Love Is This? 